Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today we are talking to the excellent Angela Andrews from Red Hat, all about her journey to Red Hat, the things that she's doing now that she's a solutions architect there, and we dive into the wonderful and weird world of OpenShift. Ethan, what jumped out at you? You know, we talk about OpenShift, but that isn't where we spent all of our time. We talked about career stuff. We talked about learning. We talked about listening and communication skills along the way. And Ned, Angela, what a delightful conversation we had with her. We really did. So I will waste no more time. Enjoy this episode with Angela Andrews, Solution Architect at Red Hat. Angela Andrews, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Let's get started with what you're doing out there in the world. You are a solution architect for Red Hat. And titles can mean a lot of different things. Can you tell us what does a solution architect at Red Hat do? Well, it is primarily having knowledge of the Red Hat portfolio and being able to communicate that to our customers and potential customers. Uh, the ability to ask those really probing questions, open-ended questions, to understand people's requirements, their wants, their needs, their use cases. And communication is a big part of being a solution architect because you are providing solutions. And that can be via you know, presentations or demos or workshops. And it all boils down to what we want to be is a trusted advisor to our customer, right? We're that point of contact. You know, we're, we're, we're not just, you know, trying to uh, devise uh, solutions for them, but we're those, that person that can listen when they have questions or concerns about this technology or any other. So it's a, uh, to me, that's what that uh, role is entailing. You just leaned hard into the communication aspect of this role. so It is a big part of it. Well, I mean, you say architect, and I think of, okay, this is a person who's been around the industry a long time. They've seen some things. They know some things. And so they design something based in large part on their understanding of technology, yes, but then also their experience, um, which I think is what you're describing. But also you're saying, hey, we have to do two things, design a solution share it with people, communicate that thing to them so that they understand what this thing is. And then you also said, listen, uh, so just, would you park on that for a minute? Just because I think this is sometimes missed in the engineering community, how crucial communications is. It, I want to say it's one of the biggest parts. We always think the technical, that's the, that's the go-to, you know, you have to be technical, you have to understand technology. But a really big part of it is you're listening to people who need something, right? And what they're saying to you has to one uh, resonate, right? You're if you if something you hear something and you don't necessarily agree with it or it doesn't fit into what your model, being a red hat or a product, is. You have to one listen. You have to have empathy because people are usually up against deadlines and budgets and constraints mm -hmm. and silos and. They come to you. Sometimes you're almost like a therapist where they're <laughs> dumping so much information on you because it's at top of mind. It's it's, you know, some, it's something on the horizon that they have to deal with. And being able to listen and be compassionate is really big part of it. Um, being able to communicate, not just if we have a solution that works for them, but also being able to be honest and like, you know, yeah, we can't do what you're asking. That's not 
what this is. You know, you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Mm. Um, but that level of trust and honesty is a big part of it. That level of communication, empathy is a big part of it to me. Okay. To consulting me. salespeople out there. Angela just pointed out that sometimes you don't have a solution that fits the customer's needs and you got to tell them that, not sell them something at every cost, at any cost, because I've worked with some of you you boys and uh, it's not cool. It's not cool (laughs) when you're trying to make me fit a solution in that uh, actually doesn't solve the problem. And the customer will hate you for it. So some of my most frustrating interactions with vendors is when they came in and they already knew the solution they were going to sell you before they even talked to you about a problem. And how? How? (laughs) You know nothing about me, but apparently the solution is to buy your widget. Okay. (laughs) Even if it doesn't fit at all. So that's great to hear that you're not only listening to what they're saying, but acknowledging maybe the solutions I have in my portfolio aren't going to fix or address the problem you have. You know, I can help maybe guide you to something that does or talk or probe deeper into the problems. That's another skill that I think is underrated. And maybe you can speak to that a little bit more is, not just listening, but then asking the appropriate follow-up questions for what they're telling you to get to the root of a problem. So I wear the solution architect hat, but when I'm talking to someone, a customer, a potential customer, I empathize with them because then I put on my old sysadmin hat. I was someone on their team not so long ago where Mm -hmm. I understand what kind of goes on behind the curtain and Listening from that perspective is is really important. And I think they trust you when when they discover that you can one, you've been where they are, mm-hmm. two, that you speak their language. And three, you know, we're not really salespeople. Like that's not what our job, I mean, it's our job. Don't get me, mm-hmm. don't get it twisted. That's literally <laughs> our job, but that's not the angle in which we approach any conversation or any interaction. Um, again, the goal, the end goal, always, they have to trust you, mm-hmm. Yep. right? They have to trust you. They have to trust that what you're saying is true. What you're saying is helping them. What you're saying is, um, getting them where they need to be. And that that's just, <laughs> it, I didn't know, I didn't even know that was part of the job when I, until I got here and then I had to figure out, well, they want you to do this thing. They want you to be a trusted advisor. Well, how do you do that? I turn, I put the hat on. If I were in their shoes, what do I want? So I think that's how I approach this role. You know, what do I want? And if it's something that I can't deliver, that's why we have a huge team of people surrounding me (laughs) that can come in, save the day, you know, ask, if I don't know an answer to a question, no big deal there's a whole team behind me that is, you know, you know, much more knowledgeable um, subject matter experts have been doing domain uh, experts who have been doing the thing and to be able to bring that level of, I don't know, superpower to a customer in front of them and lay it out, you know, that, that made me feel good as a customer when, you know, the person that I was talking to, if they didn't know and said, but I'll get back to you. And when they get back to you and then they bring the guns and you're just like, okay, Mm -hmm. they didn't take what I said lightly, you know? Mm -hmm. So again, I just switched that hat every time. And so far it's been working for the past 18 months. (laughs) I think it's been nice. Right. And you joined Red Hat about 18 months ago. Uh, And I mean, that's, there's a, 
a lot of information to wrap your brain around. Like you said, you're not going to know the answer to every question. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes. For listeners, you didn't see the face that Angela just made, but it was a, yeah, my brain is exploding kind of. (laughs) How, how familiar were you with, were you with Red Hat's portfolio before you joined the organization? Well, I was a RHEL user. That was the operating system that I uh, used in my environment. And I began being an Ansible user. Back in 2019, I went to Red Hat Summit. That was my first time attending Summit. And I met this group of people called Red Hat Accelerators, right? And they're uh, a team of end users who, they're, they're, they're customers. They're just, you know, all over the globe. And they get access to subject matter experts and SMEs and in all of the different product areas. And they bring us information. They share information with us, the customer. I learned so much about Red Hat from becoming a Red Hat accelerator. And almost anyone, if you're out there and you're a Red Hat customer, you can become part of this team where you share knowledge with peers in your community and you get access to, like I said, to product teams and roadmaps and what's new and all things like that. So I knew a, a, a little bit about Red Hat before joining. And it was from one, being an end user and two, definitely being a Red Hat accelerator. Okay. And then what led you to want to go work for Red Hat as opposed to just being part of the accelerator program? Is that something that came to you or you actually went out and, and you know, got in front of them and said, hey, I want to work for you? At Summit, I met a bunch of accelerators mm-hmm. and this gentleman, you know, we, we uh, it was a group of them. We were at the welcome uh, banquet or welcome happy hour and they were all there and we started talking. What do you do and where are you and what, you know, yeah, why are you here and how many times? And they were like, well, maybe you should become an accelerator. And I was just like, oh, what it it immediately it sounded like work. Right. It's like, I don't want to do, do this. And um, this one guy was so persistent. He was like, here, just take this card, you know, look at it, look it up, you know, online, read about it, you know, reach out. There's a guy who works with the accelerators, you know, he'll, he'll be here. We'll, we'll see him. We'll run into him and I'll introduce you. So let me just fast forward. This person who was the most uh, persistent, <laughs> persistent in joining the accelerators uh, persistent and always like, are, are you coming to the accelerator meeting? Um, are you coming to this accelerator meeting? And then persistent, he got a job as a, a solution architect. The minute he dropped his foot into the company, he was saying, girl, you need to come and work at Red Hat. Like it was, it was almost no. instantly, <laughs> instantly. So I was like, I love my job. Why would I leave my job? Right. I, I, I was, I had no notion of changing jobs, but he kept poking me. <laughs> he kept that. And he said, but I told my manager about you. I showed him your YouTube videos and I, it, oh, geez, he wants to meet you. So I met with his manager, like on the humbug. And lo and behold, at some point, maybe five months after he started, I started. So there you have it. That's how I became a Red Hatter from a persistent, individual <laughs> wouldn't take, take no one? for an answer. Yeah. Yeah. He, he clearly believed in you and, and thought that would be a good fit. And I guess seems like he might've been right. He, you know what? He has been right about a lot of things. And I really want to thank him for that opportunity because I would have never considered joining 
Red Hat. I was very happy working in higher ed and I knew that's probably where I'd spend the rest of my career. I was cool with that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can. I worked in higher ed, too. And there were definitely people that are like, this is where I'm going to be until they roll me out. And they were completely <laughs> exactly. happy with that. And I, I get it. <laughs> yeah, it was it was I, I, I guess I want to say maybe I didn't uh, maybe I didn't dream big enough, but I thought the stuff that we were doing was just so impactful and so cool. And we were you know, making those inroads because I was a boomeranger. I left that college and came back. And when I came back, it was a totally different environment. Hmm. That's what made it so attractive. I was like, oh my, we're doing what, what? Oh yes, I'm coming back. So the eight years I was gone, it had transformed. So coming back there was not really coming back to the same job. It was coming back to the same people, but they'd moved so far technically that it was such a challenge. So, yeah. Well, when we were leading up to this episode, I asked you, what's the thing you're feeling passionate about right now? What, what are you learning at Red Hat? What, what is get, really getting you jazzed to get up in the morning and, and learn more and dig in? And you said OpenShift, OCP. Yes. That's, that's, that's the thing that's uh, really catching your attention right now. What is it about OpenShift that you're really enjoying? Oh, well, you, it's a big part of our portfolio, right? It's the reason I, I think that IBM bought Red Hat. It's because that, you know, the, the hybrid cloud is literally, you know, container orchestration, cloud native development, th- all those buzzwords like this is what OpenShift brings. So how I, you know, you have to learn a little bit about the entire portfolio and it is massive, right? It's not AWS massive, but it is <laughs> massive, right? So you have to know enough about it. So when a customer says something to you, you can kind of liken it back. Does this sound like this? Is this, you know, could this product do, right? And then you have to dig a little deeper, right? So you have to be kind of a, a generalist across the portfolio. Um, but, you know, we all have to, as of recently, we have to major and minor in something, right? We have to, we're leveling up in my um, uh, sector. I work in the federal sector. And with that comes, my, my customers are huge OpenShift users. So I have to be more versed in OpenShift. So I started taking classes, um, do, you know, volunteering to do open demos for customers and potential customers in OpenShift, just kind of wrapping my arms around it. And there's a something called TAP, Technical Accreditation Program that we do in federal side where you have to test your, uh, not test, but show your acumen yep. in a bunch of different products. And you're in front of a bunch of domain architects, solution architects, managers, and you are telling them what you know about the product. Oh, you can't just fake it with a, uh, like a, a brain dump and an exam with multiple nope. choice. No. Okay. Nope. It's an actual demo where you're, you're <laughs> in front of them presenting, you know, you're ta- talking about your architecture of how, you know, what your open, in this case, my open shift uh, clusters looking like um, the product itself. Um, and then you have to, you know, do a demo of something inside of OpenShift, and, you know, you have to do the pipeline. You have to, it's, it was such Preparing for that was baptism into mm-hmm. how cool OpenShift was. Um, I'd heard about it. I'd learned the real, you know, high level cursory stuff, how to talk about it, how to sell it. You know, I learned that, but I'd never used it. This, when it came time to prepare for tap, I started using it. And that's when it kind of was like, boom. 
Okay. okay, so bring the the boom moment to uh, to our listeners as much as possible. Explain at a high level what OCP is, OpenShift Container Platform. Oh, sure. So it's a container orchestration platform. It is basically Kubernetes, but on top of it, it's coupled with Red Hat's idea of how to accelerate development and lifecycle management and all of the the feature sets that you'd really want in a uh, platform right? You're not putting a lot of pieces together. Um, so high level, that's it, it's a container orchestration platform that helps you deploy faster to scale faster. It comes with a lot of functionality built into it, container registry, um, you know, operator hub. It, it has, you know, you can do serverless, CICD, all of these cool buzzwords. It's, it's literally baked in into the platform. Yeah, rather so very than me level. doing open source Kubernetes and then bolting on a lot of other tooling and other open source projects and kind of rolling my yes. own system, I've got an enterprise class uh, system with all of that um, ecosystem, et cetera. It, it's all together. It's all- It's all baked in. Exactly. Yeah. It's very, we, okay. the word that is used, it's opinionated, right? Mm. It's opinionated. Yeah. It thinks this is the way you should, but it's also modular because if that's not what you're using, you cannot use that and use what may be in, in your existing tool set. So um, it's very malleable. It, it allows you to, you know, it makes a lot of decisions for you, but it doesn't bake you in, right? You know, with, with, with operators, you can do all kinds of things inside of OpenShift, but um, that's just their opinionated way of, uh, Is know, OpenShift, do. is it strictly commercial or is there a, like an open source version of it and then I can upgrade to the commercial flavor if I want? Um, I don't think you can do it. So there is something called OKD, uh, OpenShift Container something. I don't know what it means. I can't remember. <laughs> but there's a there's the open source version of uh, called OKD. And it's basically if you wanted to learn and use and, and develop and build on um, OpenShift, you know, without putting out the money first, you can use OKD. But there are a bunch of other um uh, I guess, prop programs that uh, Red Hat provides where you can try OpenShift. There is, of course, the 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 sandbox. There is, uh, what's it called? Um, Code-ready containers. There is testing out managed OpenShift. There's, they've, they've tried to lower that barrier where people can dip their foot into OpenShift and see if it's for them. I mean, there's even a playground. If you go to, you know, learn, to learn.openshift.com, Go ahead and literally you're dumped into a four uh, OpenShift four nine cluster. You have access to the console. You have access to the uh, UI just mm -hmm. to see what you can do. You can you have a terminal. You can you know run commands, build applications, see what it's like. So I think Red Hat's doing a really good job of kind of lowering that barrier mm -hmm. to get people to um, you know try and test and build and seeing if it's for them. Right. I used um, Minishift a while ago. I don't know if that's still a thing, but at the time there was Minikube and then yes. Red Hat made Minishift. So you could run a tiny yes. little OpenShift cluster locally. And for me, that was perfect because I already knew how to run Minikube. So it was not a big lift to go from one to the other and just kind of, you know, get into it a, a little bit. Uh, and that was as far as I went with OpenShift for a while. Now you're coming to OpenShift with fresh eyes. And I think this is your first... Kubernetes real experience as well. Is that correct? You are 100% right. I've never dealt with any type of container orchestration. I've messed around with Docker, a little bit of EKS. You know, there was never this platform in which to 
you know, go through the entire container application lifecycle. Never. Like I was, I was just using it because it was using it in test. We had started playing around with containers at the, the college I worked at. Um, it was picking up more and more traction. We were talking, you know, talking about Docker Swarm. And, you know, that's yeah. when we were thinking about, oh, maybe we can use test and dev up in AWS and things like that. So it never, it, it really wasn't, it didn't get real until I got here. Um, it was very ancillary, like, yeah, we're, we're talking about it. So what I would, you know, because I'm, I'm like, I'm very curious. So I've, I had taken like, I hear about OpenShift. I sit through like a course on OpenShift just to understand what it is. And this was before Red Hat. So of course the enablement from uh, the accelerators and you'd hear a lot about this product and it, it didn't really fit for us at the time, but it was, you know, it was always in the back of my head. So once I got here, it wasn't the first time I'd heard about OpenShift, but once you're on that other side of it, you really get a good understanding of just how important and huge a product it is um, and how what it's doing in this space, you know, compared to other container orchestration vendors, how they're choosing. And, you know, of course, everybody has their strong suits, but I've learned what OpenShift does, and I'm pretty impressed by by that product. And um, yeah. That's Listen, she's not actually absolutely. wearing her red hat fedora, but we need to point out it is behind her on the shelf <laughs> here in the video. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. So I don't know if you've seen or met with any other red hatters, but, you know, pay attention. If you're like watching YouTube videos or something and someone's doing something, there might be a fedora somewhere <laughs> in the background. So um, it's a thing. It's a thing here. So, so drill into drill into OCP a bit and talk about the components that you find uh, most interesting. I mean, you, you, we've talked about it at a really high level, right? Kind of what it mm -hmm. does and its importance to the world and such. Um, but what, as you're looking at the product, do you find most interesting? What really like grabs your attention, captures your imagination? Hmm. So it's such a huge product, right? And I, I, I want to say that I'm, I'm not in, as versed in a lot of the different functionality or, you know, the, the tools with the management workloads and, you know, the ability, you know, the, the run times and things like that. And you have the data services, you know, the, the AI ML, like you have to kind of learn about it, but how, like, how do you wrap your head around it? And one of the things that really captured my imagination was operators. And mostly because one, I thought I understood what an operator was, but then you'd, you'd hear about it and it was kind of, it never made sense to me. So that's what kind of hooked me in. It's like, why can't I really get my head around it? Well, once you deploy one, it kind of makes sense. So this, this is, you're going to hear me say this a lot of times. It doesn't really make sense to you until you actually do it, mm -hmm. right? At least for me. So that was a concept that took a while to understand, but what they do is they give apps that run on Kubernetes like superpowers, right? They're easy, you know, installing something, upgrading it, managing applications becomes such a much more seamless process with operators. And they bring that, they bring the heat, they bring that functionality that you really want um, on your platform. And again, I couldn't, I would not have been able to tell you that until one, I'd gone through the TAP program and um, started deploying it and, you know, deploying operators and it's understanding what their functionality is. And another 
that's my most interesting. I'm, I'm still kind of fascinated by, you know, how it's done, how people can write and build their own operators and things like that. Another thing, the learning process had to be um, the build process. And it just seemed kind of like voodoo to me. It was just this bizarre. All right, I'm going to point this th- point to this repo. And at some point I'm going to have this pod running. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, Okay, how do you, how do you make sense of it? How do you make sense of it? So I I'd read about it and you know seen it. Once I had learned about it, I had like doubled back to this image, this diagram that I'd seen. And when I looked at the diagram, because again, it was in the back of my head because I'd kind of seen it and didn't make sense of it. But it was like again, I had this aha moment, right? That happens with a lot of things in Kubernetes. It's all real theory based until you get it. And I remember the book that had this diagram is called Open Shift in Action. And I know the I know one of the guys who wrote it personally and the other gentleman, I know him on Twitter. And I, I was able to draw it out. Like, I know what this does. I know all of these moving parts. I know how I get from this build process into application deployment and then all of the resources that accompany it and and beyond. So that that's really what that's that thing that I found the most interesting. Those two things. Now, of course, there's a ton, ton of other things, but they haven't like captured my attention, but they will at some point because there's going to be that next thing. I mean, you know, service mesh, you know, that's the thing you keep hearing about. And it's mm-hmm. like, OK, well, what is it? Do you really need to do this? It seems like so much extra or serverless because I played around with Lambda on AWS. How does that work in OpenShift? I haven't done it yet. But again, the, I keep moving a little bit forward and something else always captures my attention. So um, I love that the way you just put that uh, a second ago. It seems like so much extra. Do we really need it? That's like the right question to ask about any technology before adopting it. I love that. Especially service mesh. We've, we've had conversations. Uh, we had, um, who was it that we had on the, on the podcast to talk about service meshes? Of course, I'm going to blank on his name. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we had a whole podcast about whether or not you even need a service mesh. Oh, okay. Okay. The the general answer at the end was, well, unless you have this very specific set of issues you're trying to address, probably not. That probably adds more, more complexity than you need. It was Matt Klein we had on in episode 82. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was, he, he, you know, and he was, he helped write, well, he wrote Envoy and having him on and him saying, eh, you may not need a service mesh. It's like, oh, okay. So you wrote a thing because you had a problem. Right. But not everybody has that problem. And it was very clear I, that he acknowledged that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Matt, I think said most people don't have this problem actually. Yeah. Mm. But it's awesome that it's, it's available now, right? You yeah. don't, you don't know what problems are out there, right? You, if it's so many solutions, there's, Hasn't you? I know you've all seen that eye chart, right? With all of these Kubernetes uh, yeah. services, and you know, you really need to put your glasses on and be like, "Wait, what are all these icons? What does all of this mean in all of these different spaces?" You don't know what you don't know, so it's nice to know when you come up with this use case that seems to be so obscure, and you know, to you. One, you have to talk to someone. Is this really obscure? Am I kind of looking at this wrong? You know, what's out there that can kind of help me uh, solve this particular problem. And the cool thing about open source is 
And if you don't have it, then you can write it yourself, right? That's the best part about it. That's really, that's the open source super superpower that if it doesn't exist, then you can make it, build it, and you can bring it into your environment. Uh, and you make, make it, it work sound so you. easy, Angela. You it's it not, so I know, <laughs> I know, but it's just having the ability, just having yeah. the ability. So again, no, you don't always need all the bells and whistles, um, but there are those edge cases that come up and there are services out there that sometimes can solve them. Yeah. And the important thing about it all being an open source is if there's something that's close, but doesn't quite address the whole solution, you can fork that repository and write the additional parts yourself and contribute it back upstream or just keep it to yourself if it's the sort of thing that wouldn't apply to somebody else. I mean, you really should contribute it back upstream. Yeah. You always have to give back. That's true. Uh, I want to go back to operators for a second because some folks out there might not know what an operator does. Can you like either, I, I learned best through example. So is there an example of an operator you use that helped make it click for you? Like, oh, okay, I get why I, I would use this. It was the first operator that I ever, well, the, the first operator I installed, I wasn't able to install it successfully. Um, but that's another story. It was um, the uh, Red Hat SSO. It's like key cloak, basically, right? And if you want to incorporate single sign-on inside of your, your cluster, you now have this operator that's kind of bundled and does all of the functionality for you. It it builds all of the resource. And, and again, I'm still learning a lot about this, about operators and Kubernetes and OpenShift as a whole. So please, I'm going to preface this by saying it. I might be bad crazy wrong, or you can bleep <laughs> that out. But this is how I understand it to be. And it's it's... It's this, you're operationalizing something that you would be doing manually. Mm -hmm. You'd be bringing all these disparate pieces together to try to bring this functionality into your cluster. And what the operator does is it kind of does the heavy lifting for you. It makes the management easier for you. It makes the deployment easier for you. That's my understanding. So the one that I was able to deploy successfully was um, the Red Hat SSO, which is basically eCloak. And I was kind of impressed by it because when you when you look at all of the resources that it winds up creating and all of the moving parts, me, Angela, I would never have been able to, to come up with that, right? So they just, I guess they lower the level of entry, the, the, the barrier to entry in using certain products and services. So that's my understanding of it, but it all I hear when I hear open uh, operators, I hear making your life easier. That's mm. how I couple it together. I like that. That's a good code on, on how to how to describe operators. The thing that really clicked for me is I was doing an evaluation of different storage solutions for mm -hmm. Kubernetes and all of them used an operator. And I was like, what's this operator all about? And then I realized that's the brains of the storage engine that decides okay, I need to provision you know, persistent volumes when something requests a persistent volume and I have to manage their life cycle and all the things that like a storage admin would typically do, yes, managing an array, the mm -hmm. operator's there to do it on the cluster. I was like, oh, now I get it. The, that's, the an even, put on. <laughs> that's an even better analogy because you've been an admin, you know all of the things that go together to be able to provision and carve up and make available. And it's like, like you, you've yep. all the, it, it, what is the word? Um, it, it, 
operate it not operationalize. I'm trying to figure out the word, but it literally I don't want to say dummy proof because there's no dummies working in in uh, <laughs> Kubernetes. I don't want to say it's dummy proof, but it really just is like, oh my God, I used to have to do in your example, you'd have to do all these steps. Right. And it's not even just one click, like deploying the operators one click, but then maintain then making use of it is tell your developers, put this in your YAML and now it will invoke this operator to do a thing. And yep. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> My work here is done. I can go off to the horizon, have a Mai Tai or something. I don't know. <laughs> cool. Uh, the other thing you mentioned was the build process. And I've been involved in a couple of different build process ideas. Uh, and it didn't really click for me until I started doing stuff with Terraform where it would take a repo mm. and then create infrastructure based off of that. What was the thing that you were doing that you saw? Oh, okay. I have a repository and I have pods at the end. Right. So it was a part of the the app program where, you know, you you have to understand and be able to explain to um, your colleagues what's happening in this particular process. And yes, you can click and do and it's super easy and you come out with this, you know, this pod on the end. And that's great. But I really did not understand. Right. So it's all magic behind the scenes. But when I saw that diagram and I was able to then diagram the process myself, it started to make sense. So it, you know, the build process. So you, you start, you know, I don't want to explain it, explain it, but it was literally, okay, I'm going to point to this repo. And the next thing that's going to happen, it's going to figure out what I need. It's going to figure out what in what's in this code. Is it Node.js? Is it Python? It detects what type of application it is. And then the next thing it does, it, it looks in its internal registry and it's like, okay, all right, do we have an image that will, you know, fit this bill? And then it goes ahead and it packages. It says, okay, I found whatever. Here's this Python image. All right, cool. We're going to take this code that we just, you know, got from GitHub and we're going to bundle it together into a brand new image, Right. And then that image is now a part of your OpenShift in your registry. And that is then, once that's there, depending on what you're, how you're doing this, if you're going to immediately build an application, then it's like, I'm going to take this image, not, you know, based off of your source code and this image that I found, and now I'm going to deploy a pod and then configure all of the resources that are required. You know, you need a pod, you need a service, you know, this is your deployment. This is, you know, how many pods you need. It's all that. And then you say all that, but until you see it and you kind of internalize it, that was, that made sense for me. And then of course you talk about the application deployment process and how that happens. So to me, I like having nothing. I don't want to say nothing ever really clicks until I get that aha moment, but <laughs> That's literally nothing really clicks until you get <laughs> until you get that ah moment. Did you have it, to write any of any YAML along the way for this, or does OpenShift hide all that from you? It hides a lot, but it gives you the ability to inspect. Yeah. Right, you can dump it to a you know dump it out to your screen, dump to a file, review it. I like that ability. And if you're if you're working in the, in the console, of course, you can just go into the resource and look at the YAML to see what's the moving pieces behind it. Now, of course, on the um, OpenShift exam, you really do need to understand some YAML so you can kind of write it out and understand how to write YAML and what's in this resource. So there, there is a, a bit of a lift, but 
it's it's great that it at least shows you. You can take anything in OpenShift and dump it to YAML and go. That's what this means. Like it. Okay. And, you're, you're reminding yeah. me of, I, I mean, I did a, a couple of years ago, I did some uh, CKA training, Certified Kubernetes Administrator hmm, okay. Training. I never completed the program, but I, I spent a few days really working through a lot of it. And a lot of that was writing YAML, which reminded me of the build process. My version yes. of the build process was cube cuddle type of thing, get the generic YAML, edit it to do the thing I wanted, deploy it. Did it work? Let's see. You know, it was pretty clunky and at the command line and all of that stuff. And what you're describing just sounded more um, robust, shall we say. That's the beauty of OpenShift, I think. OpenShift, I, that's what my understanding is. It brings that robustness. It, it, move, it does a lot of the moving and shaking for you. That build process, that internal container registry, you know, that's what OpenShift brings. It kind of, again, yeah, you ha- you can write some YAML, you can tweak some YAML, but it's not as, because I went through this, the CKA as well, go, just going through learning it, trying to understand Kubernetes. And, you know, you get good at indentation real well. because oh, yeah. something yes, you, you do. <laughs> you deploy something and it doesn't run. You're like, man, <laughs> what did I do? But that's all a part of, uh, that's the language in which um, it runs it and deploys and builds from. So um, it's nice that you can get it, like use it as a learning tool. Even if you don't know anything about it, dump it out and read it. Try to understand what it's doing. I actually um, want to dive that, into your learning process a little bit, Angela. Um, okay. Wh- wh- you've been in a situation where you've had to learn a lot in a hurry. You've had to absorb a lot of fairly complex. And if you were to look at this over a timescale of decades, as we've gone from physical service to virtual to containers to container orchestration, there is so many layers that are really going on there. How did you, what is your process so that you can take in all of this complex technological information and get some mastery of it? Mm. Phew. Okay. Um, Wow. If it, I'm putting this out in in words now because it's really all up here on yeah. how it happens. Um, and I don't want to say it's the same process for everything. But for example, I want to read if, if someone says, OK, Angela, I need you to figure out, I don't know, serverless. And this is an example that I have not done yet. But this is me thinking through that process. I want to read about it first. What have other people written about serverless? You know, blog posts that summarize it. So it gives me some sort of basic foundational knowledge, right? Watch YouTube videos, read the docs on it. Like what are the people who who are writing this project or product? What are they saying about it, right? But I'm I'm a really visual person. So to learn the tool or product or whatever it is, you find a tutorial, right? And that you can walk through, install, or if, it, if it's something that you install um, or deploy. And um, now there are all these learning platforms or these cloud providers have these free trials and things like that. So you could actually do the thing, right? If you don't have the infrastructure in which to do or learn something, you can go out to these learning platforms or these cloud providers and and get it right. So and when you then, said visual learner, is that is that what you're getting at the hands-on kind of thing, or visual like if you have a diagram that helps bring it together? A little bit of both. Diagramming, seeing how things work together. Uh, visual meaning I'm watching a video and watching someone build and put things together and watching their process and we go following through their their code and their terminal. Like I'm visual mm. um, in the in the sense that. I'm watching and viewing something that at some point is going to resonate, right? I'm, I'm make watching it click. The you'll have that boom moment. Yeah. 
right. I'm watching something and it, it, it helps things click in my head. And then, so that's the, that's the visual auditory part of it. Like you have to hear it. Some of the, you have to hear maybe multiple people talk about it until someone may say something one way that resonates with you and it makes sense. And then what I used to do, and I feel, I feel like such a heel for not having done this since I've been here is I write a blog about what I'm learning. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is that has always been that clutch way because one, it's like you can always go back to it and it kind of shows you once you read through it, if you're missing anything, if you really got what they were putting down. Right. And <laughs> yep. you get to, just, you get to step four and you're like, I don't actually know how we get from step four to step seven. I better go back and do my homework. And that is revealed exactly. when you write about it in a way that is meant to explain it to someone else. It's an amazing it's an amazing tool if you can do it. Most of us don't have time to, right? We're trying to get to the next thing, but but then you can go back to it. You know, mm -hmm. you can't keep all of this information in your head, right? Yeah. Um, so you can always go back to it. So right now it's like quick notes and screen prints. If I'm doing something, I'll, I'll take a screen print of what I'm doing and kind of make some notes on it. And then the next thing is you have to play with it. You have to use it, try to create some things with it, you know, break fix, you know, because you're always going to do something wrong you're going to have to learn how to troubleshoot, right? So search your notes, Google, try to figure things out. And for work, sometimes how I, and I just did this yesterday, um, Ansible Automation Platform 2.0, 2.1 is out. Um, I, I only knew old Ansible. I didn't know what was the new hotness, but I volunteered about a, a month and a half ago to do an open demo. Mm. And so I, once I put my name in the head, it's like, well, shucks, now I got to go ahead and learn it. So it was it was me um, <laughs> trying to learn this, you know, new platform, the new the new language, you know, Ansible Navigator, um, Ansible Builder. What is this? Why are we not calling it Tower again? Like it was I knew none of that. And I knew none of that. So, but I sat there yesterday terrified and I took all that stuff that I'd learned and I was able to present what I thought was Ansible automation platform and then do a demo of it. So that was like, cause you don't want to suck. Like you want to do your best. You want to be able to explain stuff. And then you keep iterating. Like you go back to it, you do it again. You know, you, you find an, another thing to experiment on and it kind of expands your knowledge. So um, that's my process in a very scary diagrammatic nutshell <laughs> on, no, on how I learn things. I, I totally agree with the give yourself an assignment mm. <laughs> and then that will, that will impel you to learn about the thing because you don't want to suck. Don't. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have submitted conference talks and had them accepted and realized, Oh crap. Now I need to actually figure out how to deliver on the talk that I submitted. <laughs> Do you know the amount of pressure that you put on yourself when you do something like that. And I I've done it a couple times since I've been at Red Hat and it was, I, yeah, I, I yesterday was interesting. I, I'm just oh. going to say leading up to yesterday, you wouldn't have recognized me. I was a, it was a mess. I was thinking, should I say I'm sick? You know, should I, <laughs> you know, oh should, what, wow. how can I get out of this? But I just, you know, when the time came, it was just like, do it. Like here yep. it is. There are people here to see what you're putting down. And it was terrifying, but I felt at the end of it, I'm like, Oh my God, I did learn something. Right. I, I felt, I have, did I learn everything? Of course not. It's huge. It's a huge product, 
but I felt much better after it was over. That's great. You've already mentioned a few resources for folks out there if they want to yes. learn more about OCP, but uh, are there a few you'd like to highlight as we uh, as we move to close out? So, you know, you always want to learn from the people who are putting out the content, right? Because they're they're the ones who are building it. So I would recommend the Red Hat Learning subscription. And it's the best way, in my humble opinion. It's not the only way. My first foray into OpenShift, I had taken this course on Udemy um, called OpenShift for the Absolute Beginner by this, this sweet dude who just, he just makes things so clear um, on, on uh, Udemy. A Cloud Guru has a, so much great um, container uh, information. Um, it could be Kubernetes, OpenShift, you know, Docker, whatever. And I, I think I mentioned this earlier, learn.openshift.com, where it's this, you know, you go there and you, there's all these little lessons you can go through. So you, you can click on, test out an environment, learn about Helm charts, learn about all these different pieces. They have these, these uh, lessons you can kind of walk through to test it out. And of course, you can install it yourself. If you want to learn OpenShift, you know, install OKD or install um, code-ready containers or um, CRC for OKD. That's totally out there. And I want to, I want to say that there's so many things that I want to attribute where the kind of the aha moments came from. Definitely that book, Open Shift in Action, like those images in there were really helpful, but it was, it's kind of old, right? But some things haven't changed. They've just improved upon them. But there's this book called Kubernetes in a Month of Lunches, mm-hmm. where I just said, all right, take, rip out my credit card, went on Linode, you know, spun up. LKE because it's cheaper than AWS and um, went on ahead and kind of learned it that way. So there's so many, we live in a time where resources are so prevalent, right? If there's something you're interested in, Google it. Like there's someone out there putting out great content, blog posts, YouTube channels, Twitch streams, um, Red Hat, OpenShift has a crazy Twitch stream, OpenShift TV or something. So there's a lot of resources out there that I would recommend. And I just mentioned quite quite a few of them, actually. Yes, you did. And we will include links for all of those in the show notes. So listen out there, you don't have to try to write all this down. <laughs> we'll include it all. Uh, what about you, Angela? Are you a social person? Uh, where can people find you on the internet? I would say so. Um, yes, I am always on Twitter, unless I'm not, um, at, <laughs> at Scooter Phoenix. That is my Twitter handle. Um, I talk a lot about nothing and technology, probably just as equally. Um, I'm also um, on LinkedIn, Angela W. Andrews. Um, I am also a co-host of Red Hat's newest podcast called Compiler. And if you want to check out more about it, go to compilerpodcast.com. You can listen to it on all of your podcast platforms of choice. And yeah, that's where you can find me. And I'm very social. So hit me up, hit me up. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I recommend, highly recommend the podcast. I've listened to a couple episodes. Uh, the one about IT mentorship was fantastic and technical documentation, which everybody knows is my, uh, that's my bailiwick. I love it. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> thank you. awesome. Angela Andrews, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners out there, high fives, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show or fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Hey, uh, vendors out there, if uh, you got a way cool cloud product that you would like to share with our audience of IT professionals, 
you could become a day two cloud sponsor. You'll reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve like we talked about today. And guess what? Maybe your product fixes their problem, but they're never going to know about it unless you tell them and you can tell them through day two cloud. You can find out more at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. Until next time, just remember cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.